All right, here we go. Romans 16. We're going to be looking at verses 17 to 20 today. And then next Sunday, Lord willing, we're going to finish the book, verses 21 to 27. So today is about a warning against false teachers. Next week is about worship. It's a doxology that ends the whole letter. So let's ask the Lord's help. Father, we come to you this morning and we pray that you would grant us eyes to see and ears to hear what your spirit is saying in this book. We pray, Lord, that we would be able to apply this teaching about what to do when we are confronted with false teaching or false teachers, that we would be obedient to your word, Lord, that you would protect us, or that nobody would fall prey to a false teacher, that, Lord, you would keep us in your care, watch over us and bring us into your heavenly kingdom. And so we, we just ask that your Holy Spirit would be teaching today and working among us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's read our text. Romans 16, verse 17. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I'm rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. Now let's go back and let's remember where we're going in this last chapter of the book of Romans. The book of Romans actually, the, the doctrinal portion ends in Romans 15, 13. And from Romans 15, 14 to the end of the book, he's summarizing his plans, his missionary plans. In chapter 16, he's sending greetings to people who are in the church of Rome. And so in verses 1 to 16, Paul is greeting this person and then that person and then this person. I think there was 27 people that are being sent particular greetings. And when Paul says greet so-and-so or greet this person, what he's doing is he's saying, I want to communicate my love for that person, so greet them. In fact, four times he calls them beloved. Three times it's my beloved, and one time it's the beloved. So the people that he's greeting are people that he loves, and he wants them to know that he loves them. And then he concludes that whole first 16 verses by saying, greet one another with a holy kiss. So in other words, give each other a token of love and affection for each other. Greet each other. When you come together, greet each other with this kiss of love. And he concludes the whole thing by saying, all the churches of Christ greet you. Now, in verse 17, it seems like he totally switches gears. It seems like he could have ended the book right after verse 16. Because he's winding down, he's greeting everybody, he's ready to stop. But before he stops, he has one final exhortation. I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions. Now, what's going on? Why, why the switching of the gears here? I believe what's happening is that Paul has been trying to promote this spirit of harmony and love and affection within the church by sending his greetings to them. And he is aware, 
before he concludes that there is a threat to the harmony that exists in the Church of Rome, and he wants to make sure that the people, the, the Church of Rome doesn't succumb to that threat and are, aren't infiltrated by false teachers who are going to cause divisions. Rather than promoting harmony, they're going to cause divisions within the church. And he says right here in verse 16, all the churches of Christ greet you. I wonder if when he wrote that line, he started to think about the churches of Christ that he had planted and the false teachers who had infiltrated those churches, like in Galatia. He planted the church in Galatia, but then we know that the Judaizers came in afterwards and they were promoting legalism. They were saying, just faith in Christ is not enough. You need to be circumcised and you need to obey the law of Moses in order to be saved. And Paul came down hard on those false teachers. And then we also know in Colossae that he was dealing with false teachers who were saying that you need to have this severe treatment of the body in order to be right with God. This ascetic lifestyle. And Paul argued against that. And then in Corinth, there was the false teaching that uh, you can just receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and then live whatever way you want to. And there were people there that were having sex with prostitutes. You had one man who's living with his father's wife and having an immoral sexual relationship with her. The church was tolerating it. And so there was this antinomian spirit, this idea that it doesn't matter how you live as long as you just receive the grace of God. So there's all this false teaching taking place in the churches that Paul planted. And I wonder when he, he wrote, all the churches of Christ greet you. Wait a minute. I need to take just a few minutes to warn the church of Rome that they need to be ready for this threat, these false teachers that could come in and disturb the peace and harmony and love that has been built there so far. So, verse 17, he says, Now I urge you. Does everyone know what an exhortation is? The best definition I know of an exhortation is to urge someone to a course of action. Well, that's what he's doing, right? I urge you, brethren, to do this. So he's concluding with a strong exhortation. And we need to, we need to understand that he's not criticizing them. He's not chiding them. Because he says in verse 19, For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I'm rejoicing over you. I'm not upset with you. I'm not criticizing you. I'm happy about your obedience. Everybody's hearing about the obedience of the church in Rome. But I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. I don't want anyone to come in and disturb the great, beautiful work the Lord has started there in the church in Rome. I want to see that flourish and continue. And so that's why I'm writing to you these things. Now, as we move through our passage today, I want us to consider four things. The activity of the false teachers, the motive of the false teachers, the church's response, or actually the church's duty regarding these false teachers, and then the Lord's response to the false teachers. So I see those four things here. So first of all, the activity of these false teachers. What were these false teachers doing? What was their activity? Well, verse 17 says, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions. That's what they were doing. There were some people that would come into the church and they would cause dissensions. Now, do you understand what it means to cause a dissension? The word, we don't use the word dissension much, but it means division. They would come in and they would provoke division within the body of Christ. 
They were dividing the church. In fact, Paul had, had more to say about this in Galatians 5 when he's talking about the deeds of the flesh. He says in Galatians 5.19, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger. And then he says disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So how important is it that someone not be one who promotes dissensions? Well, Paul marks it as a deed of the flesh, saying if you practice those kinds of things, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. That's an evidence that you're not a Christian. If you're a divisive person going around splitting churches, bringing and teaching contrary to the apostolic body of doctrine, that's a mark of the deed of the flesh. And then over in Acts chapter 20, we have Paul's address to the Ephesian elders. And he speaks about this as well. Acts chapter 20, verse 29. He says to these Ephesian elders, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things drawing disciples after themselves. So he's saying wolves will arise and enter the flock, and even those among yourselves, men are going to arise speaking perverse. The word perverse means distorted or perverted, twisted. They're going to twist the truth. They're going to change it up. They're going to try to put a spin on it. Rather than put it, giving you the pure gospel, they're going to twist and pervert it. And they're going to try to draw people after themselves rather than help them to go towards Christ. So, Paul's first point here is that these people cause divisions and so the church needs to be, to be watching over itself and not allow these divisions to enter into the body of Christ. Now, the only, that's not the only thing they do. They cause dissensions and they cause hindrances, it says. Hindrances. That word hindrance means a stumbling block or an offense. It's something that causes the people of the church to be hindered in their pursuit of Christ. Rather than helping them promote their spiritual growth, it hinders them in their walk. And then the third th thing we see that them doing is in verse 18. He says, by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. So they deceive. They divide, they hinder, and they deceive. That's their activity within the church. So who are they deceiving? It says the hearts of the unsuspecting. So people who are naive, gullible, they're not suspecting anything, they're just kind of drinking down whatever these people were saying. They're, great, let's hear some more. I, that used to be me as a very young Christian. I was a naive person. I was gullible. I could go into a long story right now, but it's probably off topic. <laughs> the the one-minute version is that I ended up uh, it, over a weekend in a Mooney camp because I was naive and I was gullible. I had a, band, a Jesus sticker on my banjo waiting in a Greyhound bus station because I was in a traveling gospel bluegrass band. And these people said, are you a Christian? I said, yeah. 
we are too. And they invited me over for dinner and I went. And it turned out to be Moonies, which I had never even heard of these people before. And I got out of there by the skin of my teeth, almost didn't make it out, <laughs> and had nightmares for years afterwards about that experience. So I was naive and I was gullible and Paul doesn't want those who are unsuspecting to be duped and deceived by these people who would come in and teach contrary to where what they've already been taught. Now how do they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting? It says by their smooth and flattering speech. That's how they do it. Smooth, not rocky, but smooth and flattering speech. They come in and they tell people what they want to hear. Does that ring any bells with you? I, I thought immediately of 2 Timothy 4 when I read this smooth and flattering speech. Because there, Paul says to Timothy, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. Smooth and flattering speech. And they'll turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. So people will accumulate for themselves teachers that tell them what they want to hear. That's what he's telling Timothy. And that sounds like what these false teachers are doing. They're presenting smooth things. Flattering things. They're telling them things like, well, you're, you're a good person. All people are basically good. They'll tell them things like, you can use your, your, your faith to call into being things that do not exist. You can, God doesn't want you sick. God doesn't want you poor. God wants everybody to be well. He wants everyone to be rich. They'll say, talk a lot about positive thinking, positive confession. They'll tell you that God wants you to be happy. In fact, I've even heard some people say that, well, God wants me happy, and because He wants me happy, He doesn't want me to stay with my husband, so I'm going to leave him, and I'm going to go live with this other person over here that makes me happy. Well, that's the doctrine, God wants me happy, and so anything goes. They avoid topics like the depravity of man, the necessity of repentance, the necessity of self-denial, the certainty of final judgment, and the coming wrath of God. These are subjects that these false teachers are just going to avoid because they bring in smooth and flattering things to make people feel good and puffed up. And they deceive people that listen to them. So, we just need to make sure as Christians that we're embracing all of God's truth. Not the parts we like. Not the parts that make us feel good. Everything in this book is important for us to know and to understand and to believe and to act on. And if we don't, if we are lopsided Christians that only take the parts we like, we're going to be lopsided Christians. And we're going to be deficient in our, our walk with Christ. We're not going to be, we're not going to know or obey the things God wants us to. There are many people that teach all you need to do God's grace is sufficient. All you need is just to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. You don't need to submit to Him as your Lord. And you'll be fine. Now maybe you're not going to grow as quickly or as rapidly. Or you're not going to be as strong a Christian as somebody else who submits to Christ as Lord. But it's not going to affect your salvation. 
I, I completely disagree with that perspective. I think saving faith in Christ includes an element of acknowledgement and submission to Jesus Christ as Lord. It has to. If you confess Jesus, not as Savior, as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So these false teachers are doing three things. They're dividing, hindering, and deceiving. And when they come into the church, they bring division, they bring hindrances, and they bring deception. So we need to be aware of that, and we need to have our guard up so that this doesn't happen here at the bridge or in the future. If you leave this church at some point, you go to another one, you do, we just need to be careful that these things don't take place there. That's the activity of the false teachers. Now what's the motive? Why are they doing what they're doing? Well, we're told in verse 18, with, starts with the word for. First he tells us what they're doing. They're causing dissensions and hindrances for... This is why, for such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. What's motivating them? Is it the glory of God? The spiritual welfare of the church? The honor of Christ? No, it's their own appetites. That's what's driving them to do what they're doing. It's not about God, it's about them. And they're trying to find a way that the people will serve their basic desires and bodily appetites. Uh, go with me over to 2 Peter chapter 2 because Peter helps us here. I was wondering, okay, what, what does Paul mean by their appetites? They're not slaves of Christ. They're not teaching what they're teaching because they're seeking to obey Jesus Christ. They've got a different motivation. So look at 2 Peter chapter 2. Peter says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. There's two words here. Focus in on. Verse 2, sensuality. Verse 3, greed. And what are they doing because of sensuality and greed? They're exploiting people. We understand what it means to exploit someone, right? To use them for our ends. Folks, that's what happens in cults. Over and over and over again, the leader of that cult is exploiting the people that follow him for his own appetites. They can be sensual, sexual appetites, or either they've got this passion for sexual, illicit sexual desires, or monetary possessions and, and financial desires, that greed. Greed and sensuality drives leaders that start cults. I mean, just go through a list of them in your mind. Jim Jones, sexually illicit, committing uh, these sexual relationships with many, many people within the people that followed him. And he ended up being a very wealthy man, millions of dollars. He learned how to exploit people, to give up everything they had and give it into his care. Um, have you guys been following... David Koresh, same thing. He had his own harem of people. He said all the men in his, 
his group could not be married, he had to take all their wives. God told him to do that. Um, have you been following this, this newest thing with Nexium and Keith Raniere? It's not necessarily a religious group, but it's a cult. So the same thing's happening there, even though they don't even talk about God. It's supposed to be a self-help group, but he was sentenced to 120 years in prison because of sexual trafficking and uh, forced labor within his cult that was situated in many places, Mexico, Vancouver, but the main was in Albany, New York, where the women were in the secret sorority and they were branded with his initials in their pelvic area and they became sex slaves to him for life. So sex was driving Keith Raniere. He was also a millionaire, even though he pre presented himself as having nothing and you know, like this guru who was sort of the one who had all the answers. Uh, David Berg, have you guys heard of David Berg before? The founder of the Children of God cult? In the late 60s, they got started out of the Jesus movement, this cult that rose down in Southern California and then spread all over the place. Well, it was, it was a cult where the people, David Berg taught this free love. It was kind of the merging of fundamentalism, <laughs> fundamental Christianity, plus the idea of the, the free love. And so in, in this cult, the people there have orgies with each other. It actually, there's a doctrine called flirty fishing where the women try to witness to other people by, uh, by soliciting them into a sexual relationship. And they think that's the way they're going to win them to Christ. Flirty fishing. I mean, it's even documented. They have comics about this. Um, so that was David Berg. Have you heard of Warren Jeffs? No. Debbie and I read a book about him. Um, the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So it's an offshoot of the Mormon Church. This man had 87 wives, some of them as young as 13, 14, and 15 years old that were in his, you could call them the, his harem. <laughs> and um, he heard directly from God and he told the people what God said and they were under his absolute control. And that's one of the marks of a cult leader too, absolute control. People don't question. Whatever he says goes. He hears from God and he tells them. Isn't it interesting that whatever he tells he's hearing from God always benefits the cult leader. Yeah. It reminds me of Jesus' teaching in Luke chapter 12 where he talks about two different kinds of servants. The, the wise and faithful servant was waiting for the master to return at the third or the fourth watch of the night. And then there was another one who says, my master is going to take a long time in coming. So he begins to beat the slaves and eat and get drunk. And Jesus said, what's going to happen when the master finally comes back and sees that slave who's been mistreating and exploiting the sheep? He says, he's going to be cut in pieces and assigned a place in hell. So... I think Peter's describing the very, very good description of what we have seen so, so proliferate here in the 20th century, these, these various cult leaders. I think you can take application, though, and make application to fringe Christian groups. I call them fringe. I'm talking about the prosperity gospel preachers who also seem to be seeking wealth, greed, riches, having their fleet of jets, their 15,000 square foot homes or mansions, and that's not enough. Some of them have a billion dollars that they have amassed off the people of God. We just need to be careful. 
What is motivating the person who's seeking to minister? What's their motivation? What's, what's the drive? Is it to make a name for themselves? To get the people to serve their needs? Well, that's a completely backwards. Jesus taught, the greatest among you shall be your servant. And if the, pe if the person who's seeking to minister to the people of God is not doing it to serve the people and to serve Christ, if he's rather serving his own appetites, that person shouldn't be ministry. And you shouldn't, you shouldn't be under that person's ministry. You should find a different church. We need to be discerning about things like this. So there we have the motive of the false teachers laid out for us. Now what is the church's duty regarding false teachers? Paul says, I urge you brethren, keep your eye on. That's the first thing. Keep your eye on, which means be alert, be awake, be on guard. Don't go to sleep and just forget about these things. You need to be observant. You need to be looking. You don't want to be taken in and duped. Keep your eye on. The King James says, mark them, which cause divisions. The New Living Translation says, watch out for people who cause divisions and upset people's faith by teaching things contrary to what you have been taught. Stay away from them. So that's the first thing. Keep your eye on. Now, who is Paul addressing here in verses 17 to 20? Who is, who is he writing to? Brethren. Brethren. Isn't that interesting? He's not writing to the leaders of the church, which you would kind of expect when he talks about divisions and people coming in with false teaching. But he's talking about the whole, he's writing to the whole church, and he's saying, Brethren, all of you, I want you all to keep your eye out for people who do this. And the second thing he tells them to do is turn away from them. Keep your eye on them and turn away from them. Paul doesn't say, love them and just ignore what they're telling you. Right? He doesn't say that. He doesn't tell them, tell them to agree to disagree with them agreeably. <laughs> As though it's no big deal what they're saying. He doesn't say, argue and debate with them. He says, turn away from them, avoid them, shun them, have nothing to do with them, is the idea. Don't associate with them. That may seem harsh to us, but that's what the Bible says. So we either take the Bible for what it says and apply it and obey it, or we don't. That's what we are to do with someone who comes in causing dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which they had, they had learned. And I, I believe what he means by that is the body of apostolic doctrine that was communicated and taught to these early Christians when the church was planted. There was apostolic doctrine being disseminated to the church. And Paul says, when somebody else comes in and starts to veer off from that body of doctrine that has been taught you, this is how you handle it. Now, interestingly, this is what Paul tells Christians to do, not just when false teachers come in, but when there's anybody within the church who is sinning and won't repent. They're to do the exact same thing. They are to turn away from that person. So let's just go through a few passages to show you what I mean here. Remember the situation in 1 Corinthians 5, when there's a man who's sleeping with his father's wife, I guess it's his stepmother, Paul's admonition at the end of that letter 
um, in verse 11, he says, Actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with out, judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So someone who's living in sin, like the person in this chapter, and who's not repentant, they are not just to tolerate him, or to ignore what they're doing, or pretend it's not happening, they're to remove him from the midst of the church. They're not to associate with him. He says, don't even eat with them. In other words, have nothing to do with this person. Put him to shame that he will repent. We find something similar in 2 Thessalonians 3. Let's turn over there for a minute. So here we have 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 6. And Paul says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. So he's talking here about people who are busybodies, who wouldn't work. They just went, went around from house to house. Um, it sounds like they were mooching off other people and they wouldn't work. Paul says if they won't work, they shouldn't even eat. So keep away from these people that are doing this. Don't aid them and abet them in that kind of a life. Avoid them. Turn away from them. And he says in verse 14, If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person, sounds a lot like Romans 16, keep your eye on, take special note of that person, and do not associate with him, so that he will be put to shame. So there again, 1 Corinthians 5, don't associate with him, 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 and 14, don't associate with him. Remember Jesus is teaching in Matthew 18, that if there's someone who sins, the person who sees that sin is to, conf to confront him in private. And if the person who's sinning hears the reproof, then everything's done, great, you've won your brother, he's repented. But if he won't listen to that person who confronts him, then the confronter is to take one or two more with him, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. And if he doesn't listen to the two or three, then they're to tell it to the whole church. So the church gathers, they talk about the situation, the whole church goes after this brother, urging them to repent of their sin and to come back to Christ. And if you won't even listen to the church, he says, then that person is to be like a Gentile or a tax collector to you. Now, to a Jewish person, Jesus is speaking to 12 Jew Jewish disciples, how would they, what would their attitude be towards a, a tax collector or a Gentile? Basically, they'd have nothing to do with either one, right? The Jews wouldn't eat with Gentiles, they wouldn't converse with them, they stuck to themselves, especially not a tax collector because that was a turncoat and a traitor who was working for the government that was oppressing the Jews, and so they just avoided them completely. Jesus' teaching is the same as Paul's. Don't associate with them, turn away from them, avoid them. And then the final one I wanted to show you is 2 John. The book of 2 John verses 8 through 11. So John writes, watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far 
and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting, for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. So what's, what's John telling him to do? Have nothing to do with that person who is a heretic, who has denied the essentials of the faith, that they're, they're teaching contrary to what the apostles taught on biblical doctrine. Don't welcome him into your house. Don't pretend like everything's okay. Don't assume that person's a brother. It's the opposite of that. Don't even give him a greeting. If you do that, he says, you're participating in his evil deeds. So that is the duty of the church regarding false teachers. Now, what's the Lord's response to false teachers? We find that in verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Isn't it interesting he calls God the God of peace here? These, these false teachers are bringing in division, hindrances. They're stirring up trouble within the church. And they're saying their activity is very different from God's. God is the God of peace. God delights in peace within the body of Christ. God promotes peace. But he says this God of peace is going to do something. He's going to soon crush Satan under your feet. Does that remind you of Genesis 3.15 where God makes the promise to Satan? He says, yeah, one of these days you're going to strike the heel of the Messiah, but he's going to crush your head. And Paul is alluding to that promise and saying, the God of peace, he's going to crush Satan. Evidently, Paul saw these false teachers as being used of Satan. Satan's using them to promote his demonic, devilish work within the, the church by causing divisions and hindrances. And he says, God's going to crush Satan under your feet. But notice he says, God will, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. There's two ways of looking at verse 20. Some people think that Paul's talking about the return of Christ, his second coming. And when Jesus returns, then God's going to crush Satan's work at that time, which I, that is true, right? All of Satan's work will be crushed when Christ returns. But when he says the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, it leads me to the conclusion that he's talking about something that's going to happen quickly. And my understanding of this text is that when the church obeys Paul's instructions in verses 17 to 19, God is going to crush Satan's work in the midst of that church through the people turning away from those people who are being used by Satan to bring in heretical teaching. And he, he concludes the whole thing by saying, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. In other words, you're going to need the grace of God in order to follow these instructions and obey them. You're going to need, need to lean heavily upon God's grace. Not your own abilities, your own wisdom, your own smarts. You need the grace of God in these situations. Now, that's the basic teaching here. Let's, let's look at some practical spiritual lessons 
that we can take from this. First one is every Christian should be able to discern truth from error. Because Paul's writing to Christians, not just to the leaders, and he's saying that these Christians need to not be unsuspecting, they shouldn't be deceived, they should be able to tell if a person's teaching false teaching from true teaching. He's not just talking to the pastors, he's talking to the whole body of Christ. So, this tells me that ordinary Christians, all of us here, all of us within the church, need to understand what is apostolic doctrine, what is true doctrine, and we need to be able to spot when someone starts to uh, divert away from true doctrine into something that's off kilter. Now, we can, we can go overboard and we can insist that, you know, we, we have the truth on every subject under the sun and anybody who don't, doesn't agree with us, they're a false teacher. That's not what I'm trying to communicate. There are essentials of the faith. There are non-essentials of the faith. And we need to be able to distinguish between the two. Right? Some are primary issues and some are secondary issues. Remember when he was in Romans 14, he was talking about observing days and weeks. Some people drinking wine, some don't. Some eat meat, some don't. Those are secondary issues. But when it comes to who is Jesus? Who's the Holy Spirit? What has Jesus Christ done? How is a person saved? Did Jesus rise from the dead? Did he ascend to heaven? Is he coming back again? There, there are truths connected with these questions that we have to hold to. So, heresy is a belief or an opinion that is contrary to orthodox Christian doctrine. That's what heresy means. Orthodox means true. Heresy means that you're departing from true Christian doctrine. Now, of course, this is tricky too because it depends on who you talk to as to what true Christian doctrine is, right? Some people think it's one thing, some people think it's another. So we need to know what the Bible teaches about the essentials of the faith, and I would say we also need to know what the church has historically taught about these essential aspects of Christian doctrine. Because if the church has always held one to the truth being this, and someone else is saying, no, no, that's not quite right, it's this over here, that person is guilty of heresy because they're departing from orthodox Christian doctrine. Let me give you an example. The church has consistently taught for the last 2,000 years the, the deity of Jesus Christ. They've taught that Jesus is God and man. There was a man by the name of Arian, about 300 AD, who taught differently. He, he taught that Jesus was the first and greatest creation of God. That there was a time when Jesus did not exist, that God brought him into existence by creating him. And there was a great debate. And Arius um, and Augustine debated, and eventually Arius is... Uh, I'm sorry, it wasn't Augustine. It, it was... I'm sorry, I got him mixed up with someone that came about a hundred years later. But there was a great debate, and Arius' teachings were condemned as heretical, and the church from that moment on never ever uh, assumed the doctrine that Jesus was a created being. The Catholics, for a thousand years, 
have always taught that Jesus is God, and all the Protestants teach that Jesus is God. The Jehovah's Witnesses today teach the same thing that Arius taught. They teach that Jesus is created by God, He's the first and greatest creation of God. In fact, they believe that He's an archangel. He's Michael. That's what they imply in their writings. So what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe is heretical because it is contrary to Orthodox Christian doctrine. Do you see how that works? We need to know what the church has always taught so that we know whether someone else is teaching what is Orthodox or what is heretical. Are they deviating from biblical truth or are they holding to that biblical truth? So what would other essential doctrine be that we need to we need to know what is the apostolic body of doctrine on these things. Well, I, I made a short little list. I would say things like the virgin birth of Christ, the sinless life of Jesus Christ, the fact that Jesus did not inherit a sinful nature, the substitutionary atonement of Christ, that Jesus didn't die as an example, he died to atone for sin and he died as a substitute for others. The bodily resurrection of Christ. He didn't just, uh, he wasn't raised spiritually, he, raised, he was raised in a body. The ascension of Christ, that he has ascended to the right hand of God. The second coming of Jesus Christ. The fact that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Those are, I believe, essential truths that the church must hold fast to. And there are probably others that I'm not thinking about, but that's a short list that came to my mind immediately as I was considering this. Folks, doctrine is important. Understanding doctrine is important. In some areas of the Christian church, it's almost a dirty word if you use the word doctrine. It's not a dirty word. That's what Paul's talking about here. The word teaching means doctrine. And he's talking about teaching that is contrary to that which you learned. In other words, teaching that doesn't match up to the teaching that these early Roman believers had already received. Paul uses the phrase sound doctrine four times in the pastoral epistles. And the word sound means healthy. It's doctrine or teaching that promotes spiritual health. There's nothing wrong, there's nothing bad about doctrine that promotes spiritual health. We need teaching that's going to make us strong and healthy Christians. I'm amazed. I don't do this anymore. I don't watch really TV anymore. But when I, in years past, sometimes I would flip on the Christian TV stations. And it's so difficult to watch. Because... There is so much false doctrine being promulgated through Christian TV and people just drink it in. They just swallow it whole. Um, you, you just wonder where, where are there, where's the discernment of the people that are participating in this? How can they just watch this as though this can possibly be true? Just, there's so much that goes for truth that, is, that just doesn't pass biblical, the biblical test. So that's the first lesson I'm, I glean from this. Every Christian should be able to discern truth from error and we need to be growing in our ability to do that which means we need to be more and more acquainted with and familiar with the truth. 
So day by day by day, we should be in the Word of God and that Word should be renewing our minds and we should be getting a, a better and better understanding of the truth. Uh, second application, how can a Christian discern truth from error? So the first one is we ought to be able to do it. Well, my second point I wanted to talk about today is well, how? What do we do in order to, to develop the skill, the discerning skill of telling truth from error? And I'm going to give you just five little bullets here that will help you if you apply these to your life. Number one, first of all, you need to realize where truth is found. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said, I'm the truth. The truth is in Jesus Christ. He said in John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. So where is truth? It's in Jesus, and it's in Jesus' word. That's where we start. That's where we go to find truth. Second, learn to read the Bible in context. If you want to learn to discern truth from error, you have to learn how to read the Bible in context. If you just pull a verse out here and a verse out there and say, oh, then it means this, you're going to be deceived and you're going to come up with a wrong understanding of truth. Don't play Russian roulette with the Bible. I encourage people just to read through the Bible. Read it just like we study it on, on Sundays. We go straight through a book because you're going to get the context that way. It's also very helpful when you're memorizing to memorize whole chapters or whole books. You're getting the context straight through the book. Uh, someone once said that he read a verse. The verse was, he went and hanged himself. And then he opened up another place. Go and do thou likewise. And so, oh, okay, that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to hang myself. Of course, that's facetious, but you get the idea that if you just play Russian roulette with the Bible, you can come up with anything. You can make, it can be a, a wax nose where you can make the Bible say anything you want it to say. What, we're, what we want to know is what, does, what is God actually communicating in this book? Not what do I want it to say? What am I looking for it to say? What did God say and how does that apply to my life? And the only way you're going to know that is if you learn to read it in its context. Read what comes before, read what comes after, and then find out how this section that you're trying to understand, how does it fit in with the argument, the flow of thought throughout that whole section. So, read in context. You, we can only determine the correct meaning of Greek words by the context in which those words are found. Sometimes I find this being, people make a mistake because they'll go to Strong's Concordance or they'll go to an Englishman Concordance and they'll say, well, that, that Greek word is this and it has these meanings and they take every one of those meanings and apply it to every verse they find it in. But folks, we have English words that have more than one meaning. Greek words are the same way. Like if you take the word pool, well, a pool is a body of water in your backyard that you jump in and get wet in, right? But it can also be billiards. That's pool. Or bark. That's something a dog does, but it's also the outside of a tree trunk. So English words have more than one meaning, and Greek words do too. And the only way to know which meaning is the correct one is to examine the context. The context will tell you what meaning that Greek word has. So we have to be so familiar with the context and the argument of the passage. What is the author trying to say? Context is king. 
Number three, learn to discover the intent of the original author to the original audience. Don't jump straight from that verse to yourself. In fact, people have put it this way. The Bible was not written to us, but it was written for us. In other words, there was an original audience that was receiving Isaiah's preaching or his writing, that was receiving the uh, parables that Jesus was teaching, that was receiving the letters that Paul wrote. There was an original audience. What was the original communicator seeking to communicate to his original audience? That's where you have to start. And you have to figure out that first. And then once you found out what that is, you can take the timeless principle there and you can apply it 2,000 years later. But you don't start off with application. You start off with what did the original author mean to the original audience, get that first, and then find the timeless principle. Um, for example, people often talk about Matthew 18 and they quote the verse where Jesus says, if two or more of you agree on anything that you will ask, it shall be done by my Father who is in heaven. That's a very common promise that people quote. But they don't take the time to figure out what was Jesus trying to communicate to his disciples when he spoke that to them. And the answer is like one or two verses earlier. It's, we've already talked about it. It's where you take one or two witnesses with you to establish whether this person really is living in sin. So the two or three has to do with that, the context that comes directly before that verse. So learn, learn to read in context, learn to decide to figure out what was the original author trying to communicate to his audience. Don't just jump to application before you figure that out because you'll make a misapplication. An application that God never intended for us to make. Number four, learn to look for the plain meaning of the text. The plain natural meaning. Some people look for some deep mystical meaning in every passage of the Bible. They're always looking for some symbolic, figurative meaning wherever they go. Sometimes there is symbolic meaning in the Bible. There is. But not all the time. In fact, not even most of the time. If you read through the book of Acts, you're not, you shouldn't be looking for symbolism in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is history. When Paul writes to the Galatians, he has this long allegory in chapter 4. Well, he tells you it's an allegory. He tells you there's figurative meaning there. But for the most time, when he writes to his disciples, he writes to the churches, it's just straight didactic teaching. He's just telling them straight up truth. So don't be so quick to try to dive down underneath and find some great mystical, magical, supernatural meaning. The meaning most of the times is right on the surface of the text. It's usually fairly plain. Um, so look for the natural, the plain meaning of the text. Someone put it like this, when the plain sense makes good sense, seek no other sense, lest it result in nonsense. <laughs> and I agree. When the plain sense makes good sense, don't seek any other sense. Just go with the plain sense. Now when you get into the book of Revelation, yes, there's lots of symbology in the book of Revelation. And we know that because he tells us in chapter 1 verse 2 that the angel communicated this through signs. So we know right off the bat that the book of Revelation has a lot of symbolism in it. But don't import symbolism where it wasn't ever intended. Like some people have, 
the Good Samaritan. People have taken that and they said, the man going down to Jericho was one person and the robbers, they represent somebody else. No, it, it means exactly what Jesus said it meant. He, he even tells us the meaning of the text, that you're supposed to go and do to your neighbor just like the Samaritan did. There is a meaning behind it. And then number five, learn to stand in the old paths. And what I mean by that is don't seek always to get something new and novel. The Bible has been studied for 2,000 years by other Christians just like you. Don't be so arrogant to think that you're the first person in the whole world, the history of the church, that ever has seen some spiritual truth. You're not. God's people have seen these things time and time and time again. And what I mean by that is when, you, when you're trying to interpret a passage of the scripture, go check out your findings and see, am I the only person that's seeing it like this? If I'm the only person that's understanding this text this way, I'm probably wrong. <laughs> I'm probably got it all wrong because certainly God, through His Holy Spirit, would have revealed this to other people within the church. So when I come up with an interpretation, I like to check it out with other commentaries and, and just read what other people believe this passage means and just find out, are there others that agree with me? Or am I the only one? If I'm the only one, then I'm very hesitant to even present that to anybody else. Because I'm probably wrong. So that's the second spiritual application. The third one is, unity has to be based on truth. That's what we find, I think, here in Romans 16. Go back with me to Romans 16 and look at it again. See, many people say that we shouldn't emphasize doctrinal purity because we might disrupt the unity of the body if we do that. If we emphasize doctrinal purity, then you're going to have people that disagree, and then you're not going to have unity within the body. But is that what Paul says? Paul says that we have to divide from false teachers for the sake of the truth. He says, turn away from these people te that are teaching contrary to what you've already learned. In other words, divide from them. Why? Because they're teaching something contrary to what you've already learned. For the sake of the truth, he says, you church, you need to divide from those that are teaching contrary to the established, correct, orthodox doctrine that is already presented to you. So Paul calls for truth-based disunity for the sake of truth-based unity. Only uni the only unity that really matters is unity based on the truth. Do you see that from verse 17? In other words, truth matters. Truth matters. And it should matter to us. Now we have to be wise because we don't want to divide over secondary issues. If we're going to divide over truth, they should be essential issues. And there should be issues that the church has agreed on from the beginning of time so that we know this is orthodox doctrine. You know that old saying, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, charity, or I'm sorry, liberty, in all things, charity. So when it comes to essential Christian doctrine, there must be unity in the, in the church over those things. There are many non-essentials. We can grant each other liberty on those items. But in everything, we need to love each other. 
We can't unite with others if we believe differently about how people are saved. I remember back in the 90s, you had uh, Catholics and evangelicals together. And some people were embracing this idea and some people were saying, issuing warnings, no, don't do it. And if all we're doing is getting together with Catholics to fight abortion, so it's a practical, cultural, social issue in the world, then I think that's one thing. But if you're trying to say Catholics and evangelicals are united when it comes to doctrine, that's a whole other beast. Because Catholics and evangelicals believe differently about how people are saved. And it seems to me that's an essential issue. How is a man justified in the sight of God? And Catholics and evangelicals have totally different answers as to that question. And there can't be anything that's more fundamental than that question. So from our text this morning, folks, let's develop our ability to discern the truth. Let's learn how to rightly divide the word. Spend time not just reading it, but studying it. Looking at its context. Looking for the authorial intent of a passage. And at that point, you can start to make application by finding the timeless truth embedded within that, that truth there, that doctrine. Let's not be taken in by false teachers. So, here at the bridge, if somebody comes teaching something, teaching that Jesus is not God, Jesus wasn't sinless, Jesus never rose from the dead, I mean, anybody should understand that those things are heretical, right? And we would turn away from that person immediately and they would not be welcome in the church meetings and we would encourage everyone not to invite them into your home um, just because that's what the Bible says. We should avoid that kind of a person. But we need to seek the purity of doctrine and to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, maintaining truth. So let's pray. Help us, Lord, to apply what we've seen here today. Give us better skills at discerning what is true from what is error. Help us to obey your commands, Lord Jesus, in Scripture. I pray that you'd keep all of your sheep, Lord. Let none of them be duped by cult leaders or false teachers that would seek to exploit them with smooth and flattering speech. Lord God, give them the ability to tell when a wolf is speaking. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.